Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on private credit. I'm Jean Walsh, Managing Director and Client Advisor in the Endowments and Foundations Group at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. With me today are Anton Pill, Managing Partner of J.P. Morgan and Highbridge Global Alternatives, and Brian Coleman, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager of J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, which is our hedge fund solutions business. Investors are challenged to achieve target returns, with central bank quantitative easing keeping rates low, compressed yields, and slow growth. J.P. Morgan's 2016 long-term capital market assumptions pointed to projected returns for a 60-40 portfolio of 6% over the next 10 years, which is not enough, and year-to-date results have been lower. In this environment, private credit has become of increasing interest. Welcome to J.P. Morgan Insights. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. So let's start with what is private credit? Well, that's a very important question. Uh, For me, it's a lot broader than just direct lending in the corporate space. The areas that we're looking at, I would broadly divide them into two. So one is assets coming off of bank balance sheets, and these are asset sales occurring in both uh, Europe and the U.S., and they can be both performing assets, re-performing, or non-performing. And then re-performing, what do you mean by that? They may have been non-performing at one point. They're referred to as RPLs. And then very broadly, the other broad basket is new loan origination, and that can be standard things like corporate lending, residential mortgage lending, commercial real estate lending, and it can also be more exotic things like healthcare finance, litigation finance, mine finance, things that are traditionally not the areas that banks have played in that are harder to underwrite. So why are we talking about private credit today? What's brought this on, this conversation? Well, I think there's two issues, right, that you've got to step back. One, what is going on in the public credit markets that's making people focus on things that are not traded? And there, clearly, the influence of global central banks being some of the largest buyers today of most traditional credit and most traditional fixed income, or at least government bond fixed income, is driving investors to look for returns that are fixed income-like in things that perhaps central banks cannot purchase. Yeah, central banks are buying at negative yields, right? That's correct. So if you're still looking for very attractive, potentially high yields, that sort of illiquidity is something that you'll be driven towards. And then secondly, the banks, right? As I think, as Brian mentioned, this drive to move things off of balance sheet is introducing new assets to the marketplace that perhaps weren't there several years ago, or frankly, were predominantly the domain of banks. That's exactly right. I think on the investor side, there's this demand for higher yielding assets. And on the supply side, it's all related to banks in one way or another. And it is either an asset that's now has a more onerous regulatory capital weighting on it, or it may be taking up too much balance sheet from a leverage perspective for the bank, and they're exiting them. How big is this opportunity set? Well, it's hard to quantify, but some of the opportunities are very big. So you look in Europe last year, the European banking system sold 150 billion euros of assets. Even in niche areas, I was talking to a a manager yesterday about aircraft, and, you know, it's a $100 billion market. Uh, So if you add it all up, it could be very, very large, especially when you include performing. So it's a big market. Yeah, And to Anton, your point, I see it with working with clients. People are not achieving the returns that they need to fund their operations or their plans. People are looking at it through different lenses. That's right. And I think cash flow. If you are looking for instruments that are generating a reasonably high regular cash flow 
off of a particular instrument, either for an immunization strategy or some other form of return, it's driving the demand towards looking for other alternatives that may be paying some form of continuous cash flow over a period of time. And it's not just about cash flow, too, because returns are so low and people are looking for higher return-enhancing strategies, not just the cash flow component, but the absolute return potential is pretty attractive. That's right, and it's obviously very hard to achieve in the public market, and there are opportunities to achieve it in the private market. I think you just have to be careful about what you choose. So what kind of returns are we talking about for private credit then? The things that we look at, we're trying to achieve 10 to 12%. That's the base case, and I think that we can. And I think there's a broad spectrum. I think you have potentially quite highly rated things like commercial mortgages that are sort of direct lending for a particular complex or a particular building, which could be quite highly rated where the returns might be a little bit lower, to things that are sort of more direct lending to smaller businesses, which will often include an equity kicker or some MES-like features. So I think the spectrum is quite broad in this space and continues to broaden as bank balance sheets continue to shrink. So I think we're going to see even more that spectrum continue to broaden out. Right, but yeah. there's a trade-off right here. You're talking 11 to 12%. Well, I think that you're giving up liquidity, though, too. So Yeah, of course. What, what kind of terms are we talking about? What's that liquidity give up? These funds are structured like private equity funds, and the total term tends to be five to seven years. It can be shorter or longer, but that's sort of an average. You have two to three-year commitment period where they're building up the portfolio and then similar kind of harvest period. And the premium, if you have the ability to lock up your cash and you can get paid a premium to do so because you don't actually require it, we would suggest that you're probably hoping to achieve usually a 2 to 3% premium over a public market equivalence from whether it's a rating equivalence, a geographic or duration type equivalence as a premium to go into a market where you don't necessarily have that. It depends that, on the that term, though, right? Is that... Well, I was suggesting on an annualized basis, right? So on a run rate basis. I don't know, Brian, if you've seen yeah, different I think a numbers. lot of people look at it in terms of how long I'm going to be locked up right. and they want to be compensated that way. I think that should play into it. I also think you have to look at the asset and say, mm-hmm. and where are you in the capital structure? And, right. and you shouldn't be demanding 50% returns from being a 50 LTV loan. So I don't think anybody's getting it. Exactly. So I think you need to be cognizant of where you are in the capital structure and what kind of risk you're taking. I should have mentioned on returns, For us, the spectrum is from distressed, where unlevered you're making, I think, at least mid-teen. Unlevered? Yeah. Mm -hmm. To performing, where we're looking at assets that are on an unlevered basis, yielding 7 8% sometimes, and then in that case you need financial leverage to get to that kind of return. And so the key thing is, is it sensible? Is it term finance, et cetera? And some of these assets on the lower yielding side will often provide another aspect to portfolio construction that could be beneficial, take real asset finance, or if you think of real estate finance, which can also be effectively private credit because you're going to be locked up over a period of time for a particular real asset, you might actually get some form of inflation protection over time from that asset as well. So you may get a lower yield in some of these private credit type securities, but you may get some other benefits associated with either some form of longer term inflation hedge or potentially even floating type returns that could actually insulate you against different market movements that might be worth the give up of. So expanding beyond corporate credit you're talking about? That's correct. Like infrastructure or what do you It could be everything from infrastructure to real estate 
to other real assets like ships, airplanes, as Brian already mentioned. I think when you step back and think about what bank balance sheets used to look like over the last two decades and what banks over time and other financial institutions have financed, these are the types of assets that now are becoming collateral for private credit. Right, with this intermediate term time horizon we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, the major ones for us that we're seeing are obviously residential mortgage, commercial real estate, and consumer unsecured, SME lending, things like that. Those are the traditional bread and butter of banks. And especially on the non-performing side in Europe, they're shedding those assets. And then in some cases, it could be a performing assets. I just wanted to ask though, it seems like there's a lot of choices out there. How should they consider building some diversification or constructing a portfolio of different types Mm -hmm. of exposures? How would they go about that? I think that from our perspective, that's really critical. You don't want to have all your eggs in one basket, and you want to be diversified by geography, by asset type, by performing versus non-performing. They're all going to behave differently. And so that's an easy way to mitigate risk, just by being diversified. I think more generally, what should investors be looking for? From my perspective, from the supply side, you need to be comfortable that it's a good asset and that there's a sustainable amount of supply coming. It's no good doing a huge amount of work and you can only put $10 million to work. And then you need to understand that there are barriers to entry because it doesn't do any good if it's an interesting idea, but then you have 50 people bidding on it right away. There are a lot of different ways that investment managers can build barriers to entry. And that really, when we meet investment managers to invest in, that's the number one thing we're trying to understand. What's the supply of these assets? Is it attractive? And then are there barriers to entry to allow that manager to tap attractive And, And some of these assets... People could have long track records in, right? So if I think of private mortgages, we've been in the private mortgage space for decades. But other things, especially if I think more recently of warehousing, whether it's commercial mortgage warehousing, whether it's card warehousing, CLO warehousing facilities, some of those markets are fairly new and there won't be long track records. So there is a going to be an interesting mix of credit opportunities, some which have long track records and histories and some that are going to be very very new because they are just beginning to exist because of change of regulation. seems like there's a lot of people out there raising funds for new loan origination. Is that true or is that maybe that's the most visible? On the corporate side, I would say yes. I wouldn't characterize that market as dislocated. Supply demand is probably in balance. It's a good asset class, but there are other areas that are much less picked over, I think. And so you just have to look at the asset class and understand What's the supply dynamic? Who's there to engage it? And the complexity, like you said. Yeah, as Brian pointed out, there's some complexity of some of these assets. If you're buying a building or financing a building through MES, the complexity of analyzing a million-square-foot building is non-trivial. Yeah, there are a lot of barriers to entry. There's in Europe, to take on a performing loan portfolio in the UK, you need the regulator to approve you, right? So that's immediately going to eliminate a lot of uh, people. You have two or three people bidding rather than 50. You need great loan data in a lot of these cases. You can make a more accurate bid if you have 10 years of data and nobody else has it. What about size? It's a big factor, both big and small. So, in terms of being a liquidity uh, provider, I think. Well, I think that if you're very large, sometimes that opens up opportunities for you because not many people can write a $500 million check. But that can also harm you in other asset classes where you have too much money to put to work. And then on the reverse side, if you're small sometimes, a lot of times the opportunity is just not enormously scalable and people are turned off by the amount of brain damage needed to put that amount of money to work and so you have less competition. Gotcha. 
what are the benefits then? I mean, we've talked a lot about characteristics of private versus public, but is there anything where if someone hasn't invested in this part of the market before and they have to go to their committee and talk about something that's locked up for six or seven years, how would you distinguish this versus public market securities? Well, I think generally you would, first of all, have a return expectation that is going to be commensurate or higher than public markets, right? You want to pick up that premium for illiquidity that, frankly, not all investors can withstand, right? Not all investors can just kind of hang on for a five to seven year investment. They actually need liquidity halfway through. So you've got to make sure you've actually captured that illiquidity premium in whatever one of these sort of asset classes within private credit that you're, you're focusing on. I think it has one other very large benefit. In the next three to five years, clearly financial markets with sort of the broad uncertainty around what's central bank policies around the world, financial markets are going to be going through some interesting readjustments as rates renormalize over time, if they do, or if new fiscal policies start kicking in more broadly across the world. And a lot of those uncertainties may result in probably higher volatility than we've seen in the past. And that may result in people feeling less comfortable riding out volatile markets. Public market technicals. Public market technicals. Good point. Technicals. And private markets allow you to ride, hold on to your investments without having to necessarily be as concerned about mark-to-market swings that may be daily or minute by or minute. Or driven by technicals versus fundamentals? Or? Yeah, in credit especially, that's a huge issue right now on the public side where there's a lot of T plus one money coming in and out of the market and the broker-dealers have stepped back, don't have any inventory, so you do have mm-hmm. huge swings. You wouldn't see that, obviously, on the private side. But to me, the key thing is, you know, A, it's going to help your returns, I think. That's the most important thing. B, that's where the interesting investments are nowadays because of the banking system stress and But what are the risks? We've talked a lot about opportunities, yeah. but committees are going to want to know. Tell us about where are the risks here? Some, some clients are concerned about credit, you know, a blow up or some default that hits the headlines. And next thing you know, everybody's trying to take their money out. What could happen there? To me, they're the same risks as any credit investment. Number one, you have to be sure that you have a good asset either own it or you're lending against a good asset. And you can structure all day, but that's not going to help you. If you're lending against a bad asset, then you're in trouble. What happens if there's a recession? Well, that's my point. If you're lending against a good asset, you're in at a low basis, you can take control of the asset, there's no one ahead of you, then you're going to come out okay. You mean you're talking uh, about first lien yeah. right now? Well, just in general. I mean, one thing a private credit gives you that public credit usually doesn't is it gives you time to work out a problem. So if you end up with an asset because a recession kicks in and all of a sudden default rates start moving higher in this country, you hopefully have time to work out a revaluation of the asset that you currently own, whether it's that's it in the workout process, you can be on a creditor committee, right. but you potentially don't have the sense of urgency or immediacy from a technical standpoint that you might see in a public market. And frankly, a dramatic increase or an increase in default rates broadly and a broad widening of credit spreads will make the relative valuation of current investments less attractive in the future in private credit. And to me, those are the real risks and security selection, right? Yeah. Like you point out. I was going to ask about leverage because isn't there an embedded leverage component within the market? And then some of these managers are adding leverage. Right? It's usually either or. So you either have leverage at the company level, you know, the obligor, or it's at the portfolio level typically. And, and yes, you have to think about that carefully, what you're levering. If you're levering a company that's already highly levered, that's probably a very bad idea. 
And the leverage will take several forms, right? Some of it will be the assets will be exposures to a levered company, and others will be levered right. assets of different parts of the capital stack. And I think ultimately it's why the diversification is so key when you're thinking about this piece, because you probably want to own some things that are levered across different forms of assets so that if there is a shipping recession, you don't find yourself overexposed to ships, or if there's a residential housing recession, you don't find yourself overexposed to mortgages, and right. et cetera. But if you're adding leverage on top of the investment, then you want to be quite certain that it's robust. So if it's a 50 LTV loan and you can stress it and you feel like you have a lot of margin of safety, then it's probably worth it, I think, in a lot of cases. So you just have to think about what's the base case you have to build in some loss assumptions, and then you have to stress those loss assumptions. And what's going to happen if I stress my base case two times, three times, four times? And am I still money good or not? I'd also pay one other last quick risk, not so much on leverage, but remember this is at the end also illiquid assets. So if you're looking at this from an investment standpoint, make sure you can hold on for the investment over the time frame and that you don't end up being a seller in the secondary market of assets that have poor liquidity right. to start with. As we kind of wrap up the session, I'm just curious to know any thoughts on, you mentioned Anton, looking out in the next couple of years, any other big innovations or changes yeah, coming I, in fixed income I, that I, are I, possible? As it relates to private credit, look, there's lots of people who opine on the future of fixed income as it relates to public markets. But as it relates to private credit, I think there are other developments taking place that are just in their infancy that we'll see mature over the next few to five years. And it really boils into this notion that the role of banks continues to change and the role of banks as a credit provider continues to change. If we think of lots of financial startup companies that we're seeing around the world that are providing loans directly to individuals, to small startups, to new ideas, all of those loans ultimately need capital and need to be funded. And so we actually are kind of excited in this space because we expect that there's going to be a lot more future issuance of private credit sourced by whole new venues of quasi-financial companies that are slowly getting developed in the internet age that we're seeing already quickly today. And Brian, I don't know if you agree with that. I do. I think that it's hard to say what's going to happen five, ten years from now, but in the foreseeable future, banks are really penned in in terms of what they can do. And there's very clear sort of sandbox where they can play. And outside of that, there's a lot that's interesting and private fund managers are taking advantage of that. And interesting for investors to be liquidity providers, clearly. Absolutely. So this may be something that some investors are just starting to learn about it. In a couple of years, it'll be maybe more of a permanent holding and a portfolio. Yeah, I actually view it very similar to private equity. If we think of private equity a couple decades ago, I think the whole concept was fairly new and somewhat innovative. And granted, private credit has been around for a number of years. You can see how, especially in markets that may be anticipated to be somewhat choppy, as well as with extraordinarily low yields in a number of parts of the market, that this is going to take a more longer-term permanent allocation in, in many people's portfolios. At least a very good solution for the challenges people face today. Definitely. So thanks. Thanks for being here today, guys. It's great thanks to be here. Yeah, thanks Thank for the you. invitation. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more podcasts on other relevant fixed income themes on iTunes and on our website. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries 
to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan. The Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN, 5514-382080 AFSL 376919 In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chasen Company. All rights reserved. Recorded September 15, 2016.